Welcome to the Dreamcatcher Podcast, a place where your dreams can find a voice. I'm your host, Celine Chenoy. Thank you to all of you who return every week to tune in to become a better version of yourself. Make sure you hit subscribe if you haven't already, and rate our show if you enjoyed this episode. A modern woman is anyone who isn't afraid to question and challenge the status quo and stand up for her rights and others. She's also in search of meaning, purpose, and ways to contribute. Ruby Warrington, my guest, says that women can thrive when they tap into their own spirituality and make their own choices. She's here to share her insights into how we can unleash this power. Ruby Warrington is a lifestyle writer with 20 years of experience and a former features editor of the UK Sunday Times Style Supplement. She's recognized as a true thought leader in the wellness space and an astute cultural commentator. Ruby is also a publishing consultant and founder of the self-publishing incubator, Numinous Books. During our conversation, Ruby will introduce us to modern spirituality and various tools that we can use to tap into our wisdom and feminine power. She'll also speak about the importance of making independent choices, including whether or not we choose to have children. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to like, rate, share, and subscribe to this podcast. Thanks. Ruby, how are you? Welcome to the show. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Celine. Well, I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, Today, we're going to be discussing a subject that I believe is important and timely, and that is learning how to embody our authenticity. And Mm -hmm. I think this is an issue that many women struggle with because of the social expectations that we face. Uh, Don't you think so? Absolutely. There are so many rules about how to be a valid human being. And then within that, how to be a respectable woman as well. I don't know where the word respectable came from, but it's something about that, right? It's something about being seen as valid, about being seen as dutiful, about being a productive member of society. And when it comes to the roles that we are expected to perform, particularly as women, there are, yeah, just so many rules and and cultural expectations. And there's so much conditioning that we, I was going to say buy into, but honestly, we, that we're kind of like born into actually in, in, in many, in many different ways. Yeah. 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 And those are all essentially social constructs and we get so used to it that we don't, a lot of women don't even question them until until later in their life. I mean, if that ever happens. Right. Yeah. I mean, there are so many, so many conventions and it depends very much on the family we're raised in, the culture that we're raised in, the community that we're raised in, and also the kind of outside voices that we have access to. Right. Like for example, I was encouraged to read. I loved reading as a child. And my parents really encouraged me to read and they didn't monitor what I was choosing to read. So I read voraciously, I read widely. And because of that, I was exposed to a lot of ideas very young, I guess. Um, I was just really fascinated and curious about the world and yeah, I love to read. And I think that that's one thing that as I, as I developed, as my brain developed, even my brain sort of developed along these 
curiosity lines, right? I kind of grew up to be very curious and to be very questioning. I will also add that my parents were not religious in any kind of capacity. So already that was sort of slightly unusual, right? We didn't, we didn't grow up in a very religious community, but I was raised in a small village. People would go to church. It was definitely part of the fabric of culture. We had religious studies in school, but because my parents were not religious, I automatically had this kind of questioning mind around, as one example, religion, which is where so many of the rules about how to quote unquote be a good person or do the right thing come from. So from a very early age, I think I lived a sort of outsider-ish life. Uh, my mother was also really into um, alternative therapies and holistic medicine and organic food. And this was like in the 1980s when this was still quite fringe and hadn't really come into the mainstream in the way that it has now. So I was also the kid at school who would turn up with a homemade lunch of like brown rice and mung beans when all my friends were eating like the pizza and the fries. So I always had this, oh, that is body, this kind of, yeah. it was, it was definitely very progressive. So I kind of, I guess I lived this sort of outsider-ish life, which made me question what are the norms and the conventions that everybody else is living by, right? If I and my family are not subscribing to those norms and conventions, then how how am I, do we get to choose how we live? Do we get to choose what sort of decisions we want to make and, and the, the way that we want our life to look? So I guess I had that cooked into me from a really young age because of that. Right. And I can see how it influenced your your beliefs and your openness to spirituality, which you uh, write about in uh, in your book, Material Girl, Mystical World. Uh, and it's interesting, you coined a term called now age spirituality. So can you explain what that is, Ruby? And why did you think it's important to make people aware of this new trend? Right. Um, so yes. and you know, that that book, Material Girl, Mystical World, was really chronicling my own exploration of different spiritual modalities and beliefs. As I just touched on, I wasn't raised with any sort of like religious beliefs or programming. Um, and so as much as that was sort of liberating in a way, in terms of me getting to choose how I wanted my life to look and not feeling like I had these very rigid kind of rules that I had to live by. Um, there was also, there was a, a lack of meaning or a lack of any language or practices or rituals as a way of connecting with what we might think of as like a higher power, right? Mm -hmm. Or any kind of um, spiritual understanding of life. And I reached my kind of early thirties and was definitely I didn't realize at the time that that's what was happening, but I was, I think, really feeling just a lack of connection to the universe beyond the kind of physical material realm. And I was really drawn to astrology at the time. I'd always been really interested in astrology, but the more I started to study the language of astrology, the more it helped me find a language and find tools for connecting to the universal forces or something more mystical or mysterious or magical even about life. Um, namely in that it helped me to kind of, I don't know, understand or make sense of 
the universe and my place in it, like on a much deeper. And I, I, you know, I, I created a platform called the numinous and that word numinous speaks to these sort of unseen magical elements of life that we can't really describe in words. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, that book came out of my own sort of study and interest in all of those modalities. And this was also coming at a time when these these things were deeply uncool. Like this is 10 years ago at this point, 10, 12 years ago, even still, if I, you know, I worked in fashion magazines at the time, if I mentioned that I was interested in astrology, people would kind of roll their eyes at me. And it was seen as very sort of woo woo, very fringe, Mm -hmm. really uncool. And I think in the main, main, mainstream, like there's still definitely that can be that attitude towards these kind of practices and modalities. Um, it's definitely still seen as sort of quite flaky. People will maybe not take you very seriously if you express an interest in these things. Yeah. Um, but there has at the same time over the past decade been a massive yeah. swelling. Interest. You were ahead of your time. There's but a I huge market for it how now. Many people, how many people are questioning the religious doctrines or sort of religious mm. spirituality and are That's seeking true. a spirituality that feels more expansive, more individualistic, less punitive often, and it comes with less rules attached. Um, and so I think that's why there's such an interest in these subjects. But yes, I coined the term now age because back in the 1960s and 70s, these practices sort of came under the umbrella of what was being called new age. And at the time when people were talking about the new age, they were talking about the dawning of the age of Aquarius, which is this sort of astrological era, which will last about two, two and a half thousand years, which we've been sort of transitioning into over the past sort of century. Um, And the age of Aquarius, well, I, I mean, we have, for people who are interested in astrology, we have Pluto, which is the planet of transformation, transitioning into Aquarius right now as we speak. Yes. It's going to last about 20 years. And mm-hmm. astrologers are very excited about what this might mean in terms of progress. Like Aquarius yeah. is a sign of progress, egalitarianism, activism, revolution. And so if we have Pluto transiting through that sign, we can expect some, yeah, some big changes and some and, and lots of progress in society, right? And hopefully more um, focus on equality, human rights, et cetera, et cetera. So the age of Aquarius that people have been predicting and excited is sort of all about this as well, a transition into an era where there's a lot more emphasis on freedom for the individual and respect for people's individual differences, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, that all was being spoken about as the new age back in the 1960s. And I, in my attempt to modernize or make appealing or um, I suppose show that these practices are so super relevant to our modern sort of busy technological lives now, I coined the term now age to sort of update the new age in a way. And in a way to say that, you know, what what we thought of as the new age in the 60s and 70s is actually happening now. This is it. This is what was being spoken about and predicted. We're kind of beginning to experience the hallmarks of the age of Aquarius in our societies now. Mm. And I think people are also looking for a source of comfort and certainty because there's been so much change going on in the world. And I think these spiritual tools really help us get that sense of um, it gives us a sense of structure. It gives us that certainty of like how to navigate life. 
I think right, which is what religions are about too. I mean, right. ultimately, like religious spirituality is about presenting a code of ethics about how to how to live and how to be and how to exist within a world that doesn't always make sense, where there are forces beyond our control, where terrible, unfair, painful things happen, where there is suffering. And so, yes, in the same way, um, these tools can offer comfort. And I think above all, a sense that there is some sort of order in the chaos. That's one thing I love about astrology in particular, is that as out of control or as unexplainable as things feel, when I am able to understand the language of astrology and look at my own birth chart and, and observe the transits that are occurring, I can start to make sense on a, on a, sort of a different level about why things are playing out the way they are. Right. Right. Um, And so I think this is the thing when we're in, when we're going through very progressive times and we're going through times of change, almost the instinct is to find things to hold on to, right. To find structures. And so sometimes we see a big sort of conservative backlash in these kinds of times. We see progress being rolled back. We see people talking about or lamenting about like, why can't we go back to the way things were? Um, and that's a kind of fear-based reaction to these same sort of like progressive forces that are that are are agitating. How do you deal? How do you deal with those kind of people, Ruby? You know, the <gasps> people who call this all these practices woo-woo? Because I've encountered them myself. Right, right. And I think anybody who expresses publicly an interest in these subjects will get that sort of eye-rolling, that belittling, or that diminishment. Yes. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I find it extremely frustrating and how I deal with it. It's very hard to convince these people that they've got it wrong, right? (laughs) It's very hard to change people's minds about this stuff. And so for me, I decide to focus my energies on orienting towards people and places and communities and ideas where these um, things are accepted and celebrated and where we can practice together. And where we can continue to focus on moving forward and making progress. That's kind of where I've got to with it. But yeah, it can be hurtful and very frustrating um, when when people just seem so prejudiced, honestly, against these beliefs, because that's ultimately what it comes down to. It's a prejudice. I mean, a prejudgment about what my interest in astrology says about my character and whether or not I can be taken seriously as a human being. Yeah. If I ask someone who's a a skeptic, like what is their Mm. star sign? And uh, they just give me that eye roll, as you mentioned. And they're like, really? Like you believe in that stuff? I mean, (laughs) so how do you deal with it? (laughs) Um, I say, I actually do. I actually do. And I just tell them I find it a very useful tool and it's worked for me for um, 20 years. And um, yeah. Yeah. I might give an answer like that. If I think it's somebody who's willing to even have that much of a conversation with me, I might give a similar answer. Yeah. I was actually, I was invited on a podcast recently um, by a woman who is very skeptical. She's very rational minded and definitely astrology would be just like a what? (laughs) But she was willing to engage in a conversation with me out of her own curiosity, I think. Not a kind of try and convince me then in a competitive, combative way, but more just in like a, okay, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you an opportunity to, to explain this to me. And I could see yeah. that by the end of the conversation, her interest was a little bit peaked. <laughs> she's, oh, Aquari- she's an Aquarius, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and I They're think maybe open. all this talk of, I think uh, uh, all this talk of Pluto moving into Aquarius and like yeah. 
that's going to mean for our society. I think any Aquarians out there are a bit like, wait a minute, what does it mean for me? Yeah, what does it mean for us? Regardless of whether they believe in astrology. (laughs) Well, you can't be a podcaster or a journalist for that matter if you're not open-minded. Like it's just- You would would think. You just can't hope. (laughs) You would hope. You would hope. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, for those who are open to- dabbling in this kind of thing, how can they find tools that would resonate with them? Like, what do you suggest? Because there's so many out there right now. It, it right. can be kind of intimidating. So where where do they start? Um, I mean, I think for me, choosing one modality, um, astrology, that was the thing that hold, held the most um, resonance for me it sort of was the most appealing to me and just really focusing my studies on that to begin with was really helpful so i actually approached um i was working for a newspaper in the uk at the time and i approached the resident astrology there of the resident astrologer and asked her if she would do some mentorship with me just to kind of like teach me and had some very personalized one on one lesson one on one lessons with her and that was really really helpful so for anyone who's interested in astrology, I would I would highly recommend actually having some one-to-one mentorship with an astrologer to actually teach you the language of astrology. Because I think perhaps we res- resonate with, you know, reading our star sign in a magazine or on, la- on a blog or whatever. Um, but there's so much more to astrology. And for me, understanding birth chart astrology and actually learning how to read my chart was it opened so many doors um, and deepened the practice for me in ways that, I mean, there's still so much to learn even 10 years, 10, 11 years down the line. I actually went on an astrology retreat, which was really amazing, like a week long retreat with the Astro Twins who have a big astrology platform. I know the Astro Twins, yeah. So there's the Astro Twins. um, I got a reading with them a few years ago. Right. Oh, amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Rebecca Gordon is another astrologer whose work I really love. Um, yeah. Adam Assise, she focuses on Lilith, Black Moon Lilith astrology, mm-hmm. which is about yeah. very much about female empowerment. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, social media has become it, it can feel really oversaturated, but I think right. it's about maybe pick one or two astrologers whose work you really like, rather than trying to absorb everything. Yeah. (laughs) And just focus on them and then learning to read your own birth chart. And likewise, if tarot is something that really appeals to you, actually learning how to read it for yourself is going to give you so much more. Or oracle cards. That's going to give you so much more than just going to get a reading from somebody else. Actually learning to, to use the tool for yourself in your own life is going to deepen the meaning you can get from it. It's going to deepen the spiritual benefits of using that practice so, so much. So I'd re- really recommend like diving in and deepening your studies. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you for sharing that. And um, one of the chapters that I really enjoyed reading, Ruby, was the one on divine feminine and learning how to embrace our inner wilderness, as you call it. And I think a lot of women are trying to awaken this part of them, trying to get in touch with the feminine side of them. Uh, So what advice do you have for them? (laughs) It's so individualistic, right? Because our ability or even our safety in accessing that part of ourselves um, is very dependent on our circumstances. Again, the family we were raised in, the 
culture that we're part of, the you know the societal challenges we might be confronted by. I suppose what I will say, um, this concept of divine feminine is really a counterbalance to what has been a very, again, masculine approach to spirituality. You know, when all of the um, sort of patriarchal religious structures were put in place, this was when the the idea of the creator um, as a feminine force, which was practiced much more in nature-based spirituality before things like Christianity, Judaism, Islam came in. Like paganism. Exactly, exactly. Um, Paganism, more indigenous spiritualities, animism, exactly. Yeah. These earth-based religions practiced goddess worship and saw the masculine and the feminine forces at play. The feminine force being the chaotic, creative kind of force, and then the masculine force being the organizing principle that brings creation into matter. So this is a more ancient way of thinking about spirituality. And then when these other organized patriarchal religions came in, it was more the case of here is one male masculine God figure who makes the rules and this is how the world is organized. And so in our individual lives, with that suppression of the feminine principle came the the suppression of this, this divine sort of feminine creative force within us as well. So I think even just having an understanding of that and an understanding that in patriarchal cultures, this feminine principle, the feminine wildness, the feminine creative spark and source of our creativity is often suppressed. And when Mm. we start to understand that, we begin to see it in all sorts of different ways, playing out in all sorts of different ways, even the ways that we organize our week, right? This is one very basic example. So our week is super organized. We have seven days in the week, five of them we work. We work between these hours, right? <laughs> this is kind of typically the way people's weeks are structured. For me, part of finding my divine feminine has been throwing all of that out of the window and allowing myself to work during the hours that feel or the times that feel productive and then allowing myself not to work when I don't feel like it, <laughs> which I'm laughing because it just sounds so kind of, it sounds sort of so basic, but actually it's like, I know as well, being in tune with my feminine cycles, like my menstrual cycles, I know that there are certain days of the month when I'm going to be far more productive and when work will feel more enjoyable and easeful. And there are certain days when it's best if I just don't do anything. It's best if I clear my calendar and just lie around and like, you know, play with my cat and and watch TV or whatever it might be. And then even as I'm saying this, there are all of these voices in my head that are like, that's lazy, just need to push on through it. Just, um, you know, drink more caffeine on those days so you can get through, so you can power through and be productive every day. And that conditioning is this patriarchal kind of masculine organizing principle that's conditioning the natural forces of my feminine body that are like, no, it's more of a flow. Like allow yourself to flow and life will be more easeful and pleasurable. So that's right. just one example, like one concrete that's example. That's a great example. For example. I have a question, Ruby. What if a women, like if they find themselves in a masculine dominated setting, for instance, in an office, in a corporate, most of in the corporate do, world, most of the time. And in the political <laughs> world, 
yes. can be kind of hard to set mm. your hours and kind totally. of go with the flow. Yes. <laughs> Very hard. Yes. Yes. And there are many calls among certain kind of like sections or segments of the feminist movement, which are calling for a more feminine, feminine, female centric structures and a dismantling of these very kind of masculine structures. And that's by no means going to happen overnight. I mean, for me, yes, it has meant not working, like working for myself and accepting the financial instability, for example, that comes with working for myself because it allows me this freedom to make my own schedule versus in my magazine career, always working for somebody else having to perform on demand in these very kind of like structured ways. Now, I appreciate that's not available to everybody. And it's also a conscious choice that I've made and a risk that I've taken. And and this kind of also segues possibly into my my latest book, It's a choice that I've been able to make because I don't have children. Like the choice not to have children has been integral to me being able to make my own schedule and choose the shape of my days. And I don't think I realized um, in in all of the times I recommitted to my decision not to be a parent, like how much that was actually really at the center of that decision. You know, I always felt like um, there was always this, there was always this sense that having to get up and do the school run every day would just be incredibly stressful and incredibly difficult for me. Um, And that's one, again, small example of the sort of thing that factored into my ultimate decision not to have children. Now, it sounds really small. How could like an aversion to getting up and doing the school run possibly, you know, be enough of a reason not to embark on this possibly life-changing, you know, expression of ultimate expression of human creativity right um but it's one of those small things that have added up to me deciding that for me parenthood is not going to work because as i said again you know going back to the fact that this is all incredibly in- individualistic somebody for somebody else that might not be an issue i know that i'm extremely um i if i'm if my life is too structured and i'm having to be having too many external calls on my time, I know I can get extremely stressed extremely quickly. And that's me. That's unique to me and my personality. And knowing that about myself, again, going back to this idea that so many of these now age (coughs) tools and practices are about really knowing us so we can authentically be us. Knowing this about myself is something I've been able to factor into my choices about my career, about my earning capacity, Um, about whether or not to have children, about how I'm going to plan for my retirement, which will look different for somebody who's got, you know, a full-time job within a corporation, for example, I've had to think very differently about these sorts of things. So, Mm -hmm. so yeah, but again, it comes back to your original kind of comment about how do we live an authentic life? This is part of me choosing an authentic life for me. Right. So it's like having that awareness and having the courage to really say, Hey, this is what I want. Regardless of what other people say. Mm -hmm. This is what I need. And what I need might seem ridiculous to you. Yeah. But I know myself well enough to know that this is something that I need Mm -hmm. for my own well-being. Right? Yes. Yeah. And I really enjoyed reading your your new book, uh, Women Without Kids. Uh, You make a really, really strong case. And uh, I'm just curious to know what 
was your motive in writing this book besides your own personal experience and your own journey that you went through to realize that you know motherhood is not in the cards for you but why did you want to share this with the world i think we're at a really interesting time um globally so the birth rate meaning the number of children that individual women are having is declining very steeply in every single country of the world. What that means is that women, individual women are having far fewer children than they used to. And increasingly more women are having no children at all. Now you have two differing um, commentaries on this happening at the same time. On the one hand, you have environmentalists who are saying the number one thing that we need to do in terms of the climate is to reduce the size of the global population. Planet Earth does not have enough resource to support the population continuing to grow in the way that it has been for the past three centuries. We've witnessed a huge population growth actually just in the past two centuries, which is sort of a whole other subject. But And then on the other hand, you have largely economists saying population decline is the biggest threat to humanity. This is a crisis waiting to happen. We need to we need children, we need women to be having more children. <laughs> and so you've got these very, these two completely diametrically opposed points of view on a global demographic shift that is going, is already and is going to continue to completely reshape societies and the way that we live and the ways that we work and the ways that we support our elders, et cetera, et cetera. A shift which <laughs> is the result of millions and millions and millions of individual women's often very difficult, often very conflicted, often very contested decisions about whether to have children and if they do, who to have them with and how many children to have. That decision, whether or not to become a parent, is absolutely central to every woman's life and not one to be taken lightly. And the fact that more women are having fewer children is honestly a reflection of women having more choices about what we do want to do with our lives, right? Having more agency when it comes to what do I need to live an easeful, abundant, pleasurable life? So I would say, I would argue, and I do argue in my book, that it's a net positive that women now have choices over you know, how many children to have, and that in some cases that means having none at all. This is great for womankind. I believe it's great for humankind because actually having fewer children into whom we're able to put more resources has, is kind of a good thing for, for children too, right? But there yeah. are these very powerful forces that would argue that this is a disaster for humanity um, and that women are recklessly sacrificing the future of the human race with these selfish decisions that we're making. So yeah. I'm putting forward in the book the case that we need to, um, rather than that sort of knee jerk, again, that's a conservative reaction to progress. That's and again, a conservative labeled. reaction yeah. saying we need to go back to how things were because that's how things have always operated. Exactly. Our economy works. Our economy is based on a constant cheap supply of fresh human labor yeah. in order to produce produce products, consume products, and pay taxes. That's how the economy works. It's how the economy has worked. If we continue to have fewer children, it won't be the economy won't be able to work like that anymore. We're going to need to rethink 
the economy. And we're going to need to rethink how we, yeah, how, how our societies work as a result. That's the work we need to be focused on. Whereas the conservative reaction is, well, we just need to get ch- women having more children again, which to me is incredibly regressive. And it really, um, it's completely erasing women's right to bodily autonomy and to choices when it comes to how we want our lives to play out. So for me, it's a really huge subject. It's probably one of the most important things I think we can be talking about at the moment. Um, and that's why I think the book is so relevant right now. Yeah, I'm, I totally agree with you. And I think that women who decide not to have kids or want to have lesser kids, they somehow get labeled well, for women selfish. Selfish, selfish yes. is one of them. Yes. Um, image, immature is another yeah. one. Irresponsible, mm-hmm. um, yes. heartless, cold, yes. uh, narcissistic, career obsessed. You, you know, you name it. <laughs> we get called yes. all these things. But going back to the quote unquote rules about how we are supposed to live and what makes us a good person and like what means we're acceptable. And there are so many rules around this subject in particular, sure. like this subject, especially it's just riddles with rules, you know? And if you dare to step outside of the very traditional idea about the woman as a selfless, ideally wife and mother, um, because I think that single moms or independent moms can also come under a lot of stigma and experience a lot of um, shaming, you know, for having failed at their marriage mm-hmm. or failed to to give their children a proper home. Um, yeah, there's just, it's it's so much stigma and that stigma can very easily become internalized to intense feelings of shame about being a bad person, about having messed up, about not doing our duty and all these sorts of things. Um, yeah, especially in certain so yeah, cultures. Absolutely. Exactly. The more patriarchal a culture, the more traditional a culture in that way, the more pressure women experience to fulfill this kind of feminine ideal. The more traditional and the more patriarchal a culture is, the more extreme the pressure will be on women Mm -hmm. to fulfill this very um, traditional and very binary gendered role um, around caregiving and child rearing. You know, in the most extreme examples, we will see cultures where women have no right to an education, no right to own own money, drive a car, do anything really outside of the role of wife and mother. Right. And I think, I mean, they face a whole a whole uh-huh. host of different challenges. But I think your what you're focusing on right now, your core audience are more, I'm guessing, more in the Western world, right? People who yes. have that choice. <laughs> well, yes, yes. Because this is, you know, these are people who even have access to a book like this. So, exactly. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> and I mean, yes. obviously, in the United States, um, with Roe v. Wade being overturned last year, yes. I think a lot of feminists really saw that as a real um, threat a threat to what have actually been very hard won and which are actually quite new women's rights when it comes to basic bodily autonomy, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So yes, as I am speaking to Western women, women who've benefited from the advances and the progress that has been made by the women's liberation movement, for example, um, and within that, wanting us all to acknowledge that like the rights that we've come to take for granted are by no means universal among women. And there's so much work still to be done in terms of ensuring that all women 
should they so choose, have the option not to dedicate their lives to raising children. Mm -hmm. So Ruby, how do women navigate this conversation of choosing not to have children? Because they are prone to being shamed and people might belittle them and be like, why? Why do you not want to have children? It seems like the most natural thing to do, you know? So how how do, should they navigate that conversation? I think it's very much about context. It depends who you're having the conversation with. Um, I feel very fortunate that, again, my parents were quite untraditional in this sense. They didn't ever put pressure on me to have a child. They didn't ever tell me that they expected me to give them grandchildren. But I know that is very common for people to experience that pressure from their family. Um, and so I don't have a personal experience of how to navigate those conversations. I think that the more um, the more people who can vocally and openly talk about this being a valid life path, the more people who are feeling challenged in that can take comfort and strength from the fact that this is not deviant. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. It is a perfectly valid thing for you to choose for yourself. Um, I also, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to write the book, it, I, I go through and sort of really outline in depth all of the extremely valid reasons not to be a parent, you know, ranging from because you just don't want to <laughs> through to you're, it's absolutely perfectly fine to prioritize your finances, to prioritize your career, to prioritize finding somebody you actually suitably want to co-parent with, um, to prioritize your creative pursuits, like, and, and to realize that pursuing those things might not be possible for you once you become a parent and making that choice for yourself. It's absolutely okay. So the more I can, I mean, with the book, I'm really, yeah, giving permission to sort of survey all of their own reasons for being a woman without kids. I think the more we can understand our deepest motivations for making what can feel like unconventional choices or choices that go against the grain, the more confidently we can own those choices because we know that they are right for us and they are about us living authentically as ourselves. And again, I think the community piece is really, really important. I know for my own self, being someone who didn't want to have children, I really always felt like I was the only one who felt like this way. And then slowly as the years ticked by one by one, my friends would, of course, all have children and I would feel like I was just getting left behind. And I was the only, only one. I was the only one. And then um, I sort of reached my early 40s and looked around and realized that there were actually quite a few women in my wider community who hadn't had children. And so I started to talk to them about why that was. And some of them had the same story as me. Others had different reasons, but it was very comforting to meet other people who were also not mothers, right? It's very, very difficult to stay true to yourself when you feel very alone in a decision that's right for you, but that other people tell you is wrong. And so the more people, the more other people you can find who are in a similar situation or who are also making that unconventional choice, the more empowered and the more emboldened you can be to claim that choice and to answer back to anybody who, you know, might have opinions about that. Yeah. And you found a partner who is on the same page as you, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So my husband, um, I've been with my husband for 24 years now. Wow. And he also never had any desire to be a parent. That's amazing. Um, yeah. 
I'm so grateful that he yeah. feels the same way. And I've been yeah. reflecting on why this with I it is. I think he also he's always been hyper aware. And this is not the case with all men. He's always been hyper aware that becoming a parent comes with a huge amount of responsibility. And I think part of him just always knew he didn't want to take on the responsibility that comes with the kind of traditional masculine provider role. He didn't want to have to be a provider for anybody. And I think that's one of the reasons he is attracted, was attracted to me and why our relationship works. Like I've never, he's never, I've never been a traditional wife asking him to pay for things or like, you know, we've had a very equal partnership. And I think that's one of the reasons that our relationship works. Um, because he never wanted to be a provider and I don't blame him. Like it's a really big ask. It's a really big pressure, right. To be a Mm -hmm. provider for a family. Um, so yeah, I think that's one of the reasons our relationship works, but I'm very grateful that we are on the same page about this because I definitely yeah. know it can be a sticking point in couples yeah, for where single one women wants is. to have a child. Yeah. yeah. Cause I know somebody, I have a friend who doesn't want kids and she went for a date with this guy and he absolutely adored her. He thought she was his dream woman, but mm. the thing is he wanted kids. So he spent most of the day trying to convince her why she would be an amazing mother. Wow. <laughs> she, she was like, even though she was explaining to him, like, look, I don't want kids for several of the reasons that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And he just wasn't buying it. He was like, surely there must be a, some part of you that wants to, you know, give birth and raise a child. And because you have everything it takes to be an amazing mother. And she just walked out of that date feeling so frustrated. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, you know, so sometimes uh, single women have to deal with this and uh, it can Absolutely. be a sticking point. Yeah, and I'm what's so interesting to me, given that, and you're, I think, quite a bit younger than me, and certainly the pressure or the, the message that I always received growing up was that women are built to be mothers, that at some point this baby fever will kick in, your maternal instinct will kick in, and you will want nothing more than to be a mother because this is what women are built for. And I spent so much of my 20s and 30s waiting to feel that and wondering why I didn't feel that and wondering if there was something wrong with me for not feeling that deep kind of urge, primal urge to have a child. Um, I don't think that men are raised with that same message. Your ultimate purpose is to be a father. You are biologically made to be a father you at some point will experience a deep yearning to parent a child. I don't think men receive that messaging, right? But what I think is so interesting, and this is something that I've seen a lot more since COVID, is that I'm hearing a lot of stories like this. Women being in relationships with men who decide they want to be a father, and then the woman saying, I don't think I want that, and this being the reason that they break up or that the relationship doesn't go any further. And it's the man typically who wants to be a father or decides that he wants that. And the woman who is saying, I don't think I want that. And I think this is actually, which goes against what we've been told, right? Which is that women have this innate kind of urge to be mothers and men don't necessarily. Um, But I think what this phenomenon shows is that there's just a heightened awareness among women of how unequal the child rearing still is and how this very gendered kind of divide around who does the majority of the caregiving is still there. I think COVID really showed us that for all of the parents who were now working from home and working and and doing the child rearing at home as well, 
the vast majority of that caregiving hands on daily, buy the groceries, cook the food, organize the school, like do wash the clothes, all of that stuff still falls predominantly to women. And I think that there was so much publicity around that because of COVID and how unfair it was and how frustrated women and mothers were that remove all of the supports like school and childcare and all the other things. And then bam, we're back in the 1950s. I think that that caused a great awareness among women about like, if I choose, if I'm going to choose to become a parent, it really is going to mean a, a massive sacrifice of my freedom and my autonomy. And I don't think men fear that. I don't think that men think that becoming a father is going to mean a loss of freedom for them and a lot more yeah. work on a lot more unpaid, un, unappreciated work on their plate day in, day out. <laughs> and so my yeah. advice to women who are having that conversation with men who are like, come on, be a mom. Okay. So if we had a kid together, here's how it would look and do a 50-50 split in terms of the actual day-to-day, like what it means to be a caregiver for a small child, organizing the play dates, going to the school meetings, cooking the cookie, making the cookies for the school fair, doing the homework, buying the groceries, cooking the groceries, like all of that. If we, if we can be 50, 50, then maybe. So giving them a reality check. Giving them a reality check. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So I think maybe there are going to be maybe more conversations like that are starting to happen. I hope they are, you know, because that would make it easier for more people to decide, actually, yeah, I think I do want to, I do want to do this thing, you know? <laughs> yeah. But women don't have the luxury of time because, you know, we have our, right. we have There's a biological that clock that's ticking, but men can procreate till their last days almost. They can. So, yeah. yeah. And not, not take, not take nearly their share of the responsibility for raising the children that they may produce. Yeah. It's deeply unfair. I mean, this is ultimately what the feminist movement has been about. It's been about actually enacting societal changes that balance this biological unfairness, you know, which is cooked into our biology. Yeah. I mean, around 35, a woman should ask themselves, am I going to have kids? Am I not going to have kids? Is it going to happen? You know, am I going to freeze my eggs? Like what, what do I do? I mean, that is uh, something that they have to um, ask themselves at that point. Even younger than that. Oh, even younger than that? Human oh. fertility has been massively reduced in terms of like f- ability to, to like the fertileness of humans. Sperm counts have halved over the past four decades. And the number really? of viable eggs that oh. women have has also reduced massively compared to their age. This is put down to, there's a fascinating book that lays out all of the science on this called Countdown. Um, this is put down to environmental factors, specifically plastics, microplastics in the food supply and the water supply has had a huge impact, negative impact on human fertility. And this is why even women in their early 30s are experiencing fertility issues and having to undergo IVF and things. Um, so yeah, it is a real consideration. It's something to be considering even younger among men and women, you know? Interesting, because I've heard that, you know, there's so many technological advances that women can give birth up to 50. Right. We're talking about IVF. And yes, these advances have made these things possible. And they're often not nearly as effective as we think. They're often a lot more expensive than we think. So 
And it's definitely not, I don't know if you know anyone who's been through an IVF journey, but it's definitely not something to be entered into lightly. It's an incredibly emotionally and physically draining experience. Um, It's amazing that it exists. And I definitely have friends who've really benefited from IVF treatments, but um, it's not the kind of like quick fix that it's sometimes sold as, you know? So I think actually bringing this bringing this whole conversation around do i want to have a child having that conversation like early like bring it making it a normal conversation and within that normalizing the choice not to have a child if that's what you decide is right for you like sort of just bringing it into the rather than it being this kind of unspoken assumption that everybody will have children actually bringing the conversation into sex ed classes like bringing the conversation into college classrooms. It's like, it's a really important thing to be talking about, you know? And and as I said, within that valorizing, it's absolutely okay if you decide that this is not what you want to do. Yeah. And I'm I'm glad that there are people like you out there who are who's removing the stigma and really shedding a light on this. The fact that we do have a choice, that we women do have a choice. So yeah, Ruby, a choice thank you. that has been hard one, a choice that is not available all around the world and a choice that Absolutely. we need to be championing and fighting yeah. for. Yeah. Right. So if you have that choice, don't take it for granted. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, that's it. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Ruby, thank you so much. I really appreciate you being here, sharing your unique insights with all of us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been really nice to meet you. So for all our listeners who want to know more about Ruby Warrington and her books, please visit rubywarrington.com. As usual, the link will be in the description. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed what you just heard, please subscribe to my podcast and feel free to share it with your friends and family. Take care and speak soon.